Our second reading comes from Romans chapter 4. I will read... Oh, shoot. Can someone bring me a Bible? Uh, It says 13 through 23, but that's not quite enough. So we're going to read, I think, 13 through 24 or 25, something like that. It'll make sense when I do it. All right. Most of it will appear on the screen. The rest of it is in your Bibles. Hear the word of God. Promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of, for if the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void, for the law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Lord, by the words of your mouth, you called into being the world and you made it good. And by your Holy Spirit, you inspired these words of Scripture to be written and to be preserved for us. We pray this day that your Holy Spirit would hover in this room, that uh, he would be present in our hearts so that we might hear what it is that you have to say to us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So God made a surprising promise to Abraham. God promised Abraham, that he was going to be the father of many nations. And Abraham trusted that promise. And because of his trust, because of his faith in God's promise, God credited this faith to Abraham as righteousness. That is to say, Abraham was right with God. Abraham was in a state of grace. Abraham was bound for glory because of this trust, because of this faith that he had in God. Now, one important thing to notice here, and it's something that often goes unnoted, is that the mark of Abraham's faith 
is that he trusted God to fulfill a promise that God had made. Not that he trusted God to grant a prayer that Abraham had made. Do you see the difference? Let me say it again. The mark of Abraham's faith is that he trusted God to fulfill a promise that God had made, not that he trusted God to grant a prayer that Abraham had made. Maybe you never noticed, but Abraham did not pray, Oh dear God, please make me the father of many nations. Nothing in Scripture gives us any reason to think that Abraham's great ambition in life was to have many descendants or to even have a single son. When Sarah was unable to conceive after a number of years of marriage, she went to Abraham and told him to take her slave girl, Hagar, as a concubine so that Abraham could have a child by her. That was Sarah's idea, not Abraham's. And so Ishmael is born to Hagar. God's promises reveal God's desires for us and for his world, while our prayers reveal our desires for ourselves and for our world. And those two things are not always the same. Scripture records for us only two prayers of Abraham. And the subject of those prayers might surprise you. First, there is a brief prayer in Genesis 17:18. Ishmael has been born and God then tells Abraham that Sarah will also have a child. And that through Sarah's child, she will become the mother of many nations and the mother of kings of nations. Abraham laughs. And then he pleads with God on behalf of his first child, the child that he has by Hagar. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Abraham prays. His prayer is for the son born to the concubine, the son who was not the child of promise. And Abraham asked God to look upon this child as the fulfillment of God's promise to him that he would be the father of many nations. And you know what? God does not grant that prayer. Abraham's desire and God's desire are not the same. And then the second prayer of Abraham appears in Genesis chapter 18, verses 23 through 32, where Abraham tries to negotiate with God on behalf of the city of Sodom, where his nephew Lot lives, that God wouldn't destroy it. And you know what? God does not grant that prayer either. Because Abraham's desire and God's desire are not the same. Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that we measure our faith by how much we trust God to grant our prayers rather than by how much we trust God to keep his promises. Do you see the difference? We need to make sure that our faith is in God and not in our prayers. Yes, pray without ceasing. Yes, pray about everything. Yes, cast all your cares upon the Lord. But don't make the mistake of thinking that just because you prayed it, that it's in God's plan. Here's what we read in 1 John 5, 14 and 15. This is the confidence that we have toward Him... 
that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. The key phrase, of course, is according to his will. If we pray according to God's will, then God does hear us. And when he hears us, he gives us what we ask for. Now, a great way of finding out what God's will is for us and for the world is to listen to the promises that God makes. What are God's promises for us? What promises of God do we need to trust with the same dogged determination that Abraham trusted God about making him the father of nations. Is it perhaps Isaiah 41.10? Do not fear, for I am with you. For I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. Or is it perhaps James 1.5 that says, If any of you lacks wisdom, ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Or maybe it's Jeremiah 29.11. I know the plans I have for you. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Or maybe it's John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Or maybe it's Philippians 4.19. God will meet all of your needs. According to his riches and glory. Or maybe it's Psalm 37, 4. Take delight in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Or maybe it's Romans 8, 28. In all things, God works for the good of those who love Him and have been called according to His purposes. Or maybe it's Malachi 3, 10 and 11. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse and put me to the test. I will open the windows of heaven for you and pour down on you a blessing. Or maybe it's Philippians 4.17. The peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your heart. Or maybe it's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Or maybe it's 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercy, the God of all comforts, who comforts us in our afflictions so that we are able to comfort others in their afflictions. Or maybe it's Philippians 1, 6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. At the day of Jesus Christ. Or maybe it's 1 Thessalonians 5.9. God has not destined us for wrath. But for salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. Or maybe it's Hebrews 7.25. Jesus is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him. Or maybe it's James 4.8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Or maybe it's 1 John 3.1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. Or maybe it's 2 Corinthians 12.9. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. Just a few of the many, many promises that God makes to God's people. These are promises for you. Which of these promises do you need to be holding on to? God made a surprising promise to Abraham. That was a promise for him and for him alone. God did not promise all of us. 
to make us fathers of many nations. God made that surprising promise to Abraham, and Abraham trusted that promise. And Genesis 5, 6, 15, 6 tells us it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham stood justified before God by faith, not by works. Abraham was in a state of grace. He was glory bound because he trusted in God, not because he was holier than other people. This verse in Genesis is crucial to our understanding of the doctrine of justification, crucial to our theological account of how it is that we can stand before God without fear, knowing that we enjoy his favor and that we will be with him for all eternity. The doctrine of justification is important to understand because it is what distinguishes the gospel from every other religion or philosophical system. If you fail to understand the doctrine of justification, you fail to grasp the gospel. Which is why Paul keeps coming at this question from multiple angles, which is why we keep preaching this core idea week after week. Paul writes in Romans 4, 23 and 24, but the words it was counted to him were not written for Abraham alone, but for our sake also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our transgressions, or, and raised for our justification. In the same way that Abraham was justified, was counted righteous by his faith in God's promise, so we too are justified, are counted righteous by our faith in Jesus. Romans 10, 9 and 10 tells us if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, in the remainder of this sermon, I want to make just three small points about the nature or the dynamics of faith. They are, number one, faith is trust. Number two, faith is in a person. And number three, faith changes us. Number one, faith is trust. Beginning with Martin Luther, Reformed theology has traditionally distinguished three components of faith. They are knowledge, assent, and trust. To begin, faith requires knowledge. I can't believe the gospel if I don't know the gospel. I can't have faith in Jesus if I don't know anything about Jesus. The Christian faith begins with knowledge of the statements in Scripture, which is why we spend so much time studying and preaching the Bible. Second, faith requires assent. I might know what the Bible teaches and still not believe it. Bart Ehrman, the Princeton-trained New Testament scholar, is a perfect example of this. He certainly knows the New Testament inside and out, but he doesn't believe what it says. He cannot give his assent to the claims that it makes, claims like the virgin birth and the resurrection of Jesus, claims like the promise of eternal salvation for those who have faith in Christ. He knows them, but he doesn't give his assent. Faith requires both knowledge and assent. We need to know what the Bible teaches. And we need also to say, yes, that is true. I believe it. And third, faith requires trust. And this really is the crucial part of faith. 
This is where the rubber hits the road because trust is what opens the door for action and obedience. The clearest illustration of this is probably the trust fall. Raise your hand if you've ever done a trust fall. I'm surprised. I, I haven't and I won't. For many years, Rosie and Calvin attended a Christian camp in western Pennsylvania called Summer's Best Two Weeks. That refers to how much the parents enjoy having their kids away. And one of the regular features of this camp was the trust fall. So the trusting individual stands on top of a tree stump or a telephone pole or something, and then they fall backwards into a crowd of people trusting that the other members of the group will catch them before they hit the ground. You can know how a trust fall works. You can understand the theory of the activity and still not give it a shot. You can believe that the group will catch the people falling off the logs and that no one will get killed and still not do it yourself. This is kind of how I feel about roller coasters. I understand the physics I believe that it should work out. It usually does work out. But frankly, I'd rather not run the risk. I'd rather not be a test case for roller coaster trust. Faith, however, isn't faith until it trusts. You can memorize the Bible. You can know all of the articles of our faith, you can actually believe, give intellectual assent to, all of the claims made in Scripture and still not be trusting God with your life. Still not be trusting that God will deliver on His promises for you. And if you haven't reached that trusting stage yet, then you don't yet have a saving faith. Because the faith that God counts to us as righteousness is like the faith of Abraham, a faith that trusted God to deliver on what God promised. Question 21 of the Heidelberg Catechism asks, what is saving faith? And the answer given is, saving faith is not only sure knowledge, whereby I hold for true all that God has revealed in his word, That's the combination of trust and assent. But also a firm confidence, that's the trust, which the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the gospel, not only to others, but also to me, remission of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. Faith is trust which leads to action, like falling off a log into the arms of your friends. And second, faith is a person. Faith is in a person. Faith is trust, but faith is trust in a person. That is to say, faith is trust in God. Abraham believed God. God said strange things to Abraham. Abraham didn't believe what God said because those things made sense. Abraham believed what God said because God had said it. Abraham's trust was not in the statement, I will make you the father of many nations. Abraham's trust was in the person who made that statement. And who is this person that Abraham believed? Paul in Romans 4.17 identifies that person in this way. 
in the presence of God in whom Abraham believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Why does Abraham believe God when God says unbelievable things? Because God is the one who calls into existence things that don't exist. When God tells Abraham, an old man with no kids, that he will be the father of many nations, Abraham believes him, not because that statement makes a whole lot of sense, but because the person who made that statement is someone who causes things to come into being. Things that didn't exist before. What is it that God has promised would come into being in your life? What blessing, what perfection, what goodness has God promised would come into being in your life because you are one of his adopted children? Whatever it is, no matter how crazy it might seem to the people in the world, if God has made that promise, you can trust it because you can trust the person who made the promise, the person who calls into existence things that do not yet exist. God also is the one who gives life to the dead. I'm not sure that Abraham knew that yet, but that becomes very clear with Jesus. God is the one who gives life to the dead. What dead part of your life has God promised to resurrect? What dead thing in your life has God promised to restore? Whatever it is, no matter how crazy it might seem to the people around you, if God has made that promise, you can trust it. Because you can trust the person who made the promise, the person who gives life to the dead. And number three, faith changes us. Much of our faith is exercised in our prayer life. And a lot of our praying is about asking God to change stuff. Dear God, please change my circumstances. Dear God, please change my job. Dear God, please change my bank balance. Dear God, please change my husband. Dear God, please change my kids. Dear God, please change other people because you know, God, if those other people would just shape up, everything would be fine. And a lot of our praying is about asking God to change stuff. But what scripture teaches is that prayer changes us. Scripture teaches that when we pray according to the will of God, God hears our prayer. And since God's will is unchanging, that means prayer is actually that process by which our hearts and minds are changed so that they begin to match God's heart and mind. Successful prayer is prayer that aligns our will with the will of God, not the other way around. Now this doesn't mean that we understand what changes need to happen in our hearts and minds when we begin to pray. But if we are praying authentically, if we are praying faithfully, if we are trusting God because He is God, we need to be open to the pushing 
and the shaping of the Holy Spirit so that our desires begin to change into God's desires so that our will starts to become aligned with God's will. We need to be willing to be surprised by what God will do to us as we pray. God's will for you and God's will for this world are revealed in God's promises that we find in the pages of Scripture. We can trust those promises. We should dig for those promises like they are precious gold. We need to pray those promises. We need to pray the promises of Scripture. We need to trust the person who made those promises. And then we will see what wonders God will begin to bring pass in our own lives. Now, I don't want to close this service or this sermon without reminding you of the basics of the gospel, without reminding you of the greatest and most important promise of all, the promise upon which all of the other promises are built. The Bible teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 The Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Romans 6.23 The Bible teaches that God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 The Bible teaches that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Romans 10, 9, and 10. The Bible teaches that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, 13. Those are promises. Promises that you can trust. And if you've never trusted them before today, I invite you to trust them today. This is the word of God for us. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we honor you and we bless your name and we thank you that you are a good God and a loving God. That you have created the path and the way for us to be united with you and to know you now and forevermore. Lord, we pray that you would give us the faith and the trust to lean into you, to lean into the accomplished work of Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen, 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 amen.